today we're adding another installment to our Stories of Jesus, and we're going to have Kingston read a story to Grant. I want you to pay special attention to this story and even the details of this story because for the first followers, this story was a big one. So here is Kingston reading the story of a feeding miracle to Grant. Good morning, everyone. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Grant. Hi. Today in church, Pastor Ed is going to be talking about Jesus' power. There's a story in the Bible that shows us this power. Do you know what the Bible is? Um, it's God's word. That's right. Would you like to hear a story about Jesus feeding thousands of people? Yes. Okay, here we go. It's from Luke chapter 9, verses 12 through 17. It goes like this. Late in the afternoon, the 12 disciples came to him and said, send the crowds away to the nearby villages and farms so they can find food and lodging for the night. There's nothing to eat here in this remote place. But Jesus said, you feed them. But we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Or are you expecting us to go and buy enough food for this whole crowd? For there were about 5,000 men there. Jesus replied, tell them to sit down in groups of about 50 each. So the people all sat down and Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up towards heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread and the fish to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. Wow, that is a lot of people to feed with not much food. Where did they get the loaves and fish anyway? That's a great question. In the Gospel of John, it says, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Hmm, for that whole crowd, only one kid had food? Well, I'm guessing there might have been others with food, but there weren't, they weren't as brave as the little boy. They probably thought, if I give up my dinner, what am I gonna eat? When Jesus prayed over the bread and fish, what happened then? Glue glue. Yeah, like that. So if Jesus can multiply food, is there anything he can't do? No, God can do anything. You are very smart. High five. Okay, so we did a responsive reading a moment ago with Jordan from Psalm 121. And Psalm 121 was on the greatest hits for the Jews for centuries. In that psalm, it has a familiar and a very important refrain in which the psalmist is reminding himself and his reader, he's appealing to his own memory, a really important message when he says, I lift my eyes up to the hills, where does my help come from? This is a re an important refrain for us as well. Uh, I need to find a job where does my help come from? The kids are picking on me at school. Where does my help come from? Look, we got to get through this next year of distance learning with our kids and both of us work. 
Where does our help come from? I've had this frightening and very painful lump under my arm. Where does my help come from? The, the, the stove broke, the refrigerator is breaking, and, and the transmission just ran out in the car. Where does our help come from? Now, uh, each one of those, each one of those questions has, has a different answer. You know, I should talk to my teacher about it. Uh, I need to work my network. Uh, I need to find a, a, a good mechanic and a, a, a cheap handyman. Uh, and, and, but those answers, they aren't really satisfying. Not really. I'm, I'm, and I'm not just talking about in some uh, vague preachery sense. First of all, the question of where does my help come from, it's, it's whack-a-mole. Uh, you knock down one set of problems and three more pop up. Uh, secondly, the answers that we get to that question are almost never fully satisfying. Did we get it exactly right? I mean, did the kids really learn anything this year? Right? Uh, should we get a second opinion? How about a third opinion? Have you heard about that new treatment? Where does my help come from really? And as it turns out, that question has a right answer. And Kingston gave it to us this morning in the story that he read. My help comes from God. God supplies our needs. God is able to, to provide exceeding, exceedingly abundantly above what we can even imagine. God is able to provide outside of the restrictions of our circumstances. In other words, my, my hopes and my prayers don't need to be limited by my present circumstances. God is able to provide exactly what we really need. God is able to provide exactly what we really need. Some of you have been around church long enough. Uh, you've been following Christ long enough to remember there was a, there was a song that uh, rattled around different church settings. I think in the 70s and 80s, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me, for me, for me. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me. Now, I didn't say it was a good song, but it was a song with an essential message, a message that we have to constantly remind ourselves. That's why Psalm 121 became one of the greatest hits for the Jews. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So the story that Kingston read for us seems to have come from the middle of Jesus's ministry life. And what has happened up to this point in Jesus's life? Well, he had become very well known throughout the Galilean countryside uh, there have been several incredible healings, and he had continued to have these bizarre confrontations with evil spirits. And Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders was in full bloom. Every time he said something that, that stretched them beyond their rigid concepts, which, which, which was often, they grew increasingly uncomfortable. Every miracle, every confrontation with evil spirits increased their concern and skepticism. As I said last week, they had given up on the notion that all of these things were just parlor tricks. They had come to conclude something much darker. They believed that the devil was behind all of this and, and clearly something wild and outside of nature was happening, but it couldn't be God because if it was God, he'd be a Pharisee and he'd agree with us in all of our assumptions. And through this period, Jesus also added a whole different category of, of the miraculous 
to his resume. Bible scholars call it nature miracles. Somehow Jesus seemed to be able to suspend the laws of nature, the, the rules of physics. Now, of course, these, the rules of physics weren't known or understood or studied by ancient people, but look, they, they knew them from experience. They knew if you threw something up in the air, it came back down. They knew if you stepped off of a boat into the water, you sank. And yet somehow, around Jesus, once in a while, these things didn't happen the way they were supposed to happen. The most dramatic nature miracle in the biographies is, in my opinion, is probably the calming of the storm. I think that's my favorite Jesus story, really. The disciples were out in a boat with Jesus in the Sea of Galilee, and a raging storm swept across the sea. Now, the Sea of Galilee is kind of like a bowl. It, like on three and a half sides, it's surrounded by hills. And these, these storms were quite famous, especially among fishermen of the day. Almost everyone who lived near the sea knew someone who had lost their life in one of these storms. And the disciples were very afraid. Jesus was asleep in the front of the boat. So they, they wake him up with alarm, and he proceeds to stand up, go to the, the front of the boat, and speak to the sea and to the storm, and it got completely still. The accounts tell us that at that point, after Jesus calmed the storm, they were even more afraid. And Matthew's account says, Matthew remembers that the disciples looked at one another and said, what kind of man is this? The reason I love that story so much is because it graphically demonstrates that Jesus was really holiness with skin on. Many of you have heard me talk about holiness many times over the years here at Gateway, uh, and I always illustrate it the same way. Holiness is, it means purity, but more importantly, the first definition of holiness is set-apartness, uniqueness, complete otherness. So imagine, if you would, a category, a giant category, and it's got in it rocks and trees and air and our thoughts and the Milky Way and the sun and everything that we know. And the title of that category is Reality as We Know It. And then over here is a whole separate category. And in that category, God, holy, completely other. When the disciples cried out, what kind of man is this? They were recognizing holiness with skin on. I mean, they didn't fully get it. They were overwhelmed. They were clearly more frightened of that than they were of the storm, and appropriately so they should have been. But without question, they were beginning to see. Then they take a trip back across the sea after that trip, and they probably ended up in Capernaum where Jesus brought a dead girl back to life. Look, you just can't escape these stories in Jesus' life. Anyone who settles on the idea that Jesus was this pretty cool, uh, uh, progressive, awesome, first century spiritual guru, they've never read the accounts or they've disregarded the accounts. Jesus' life and his ministry constantly assault us with you got to be kidding me, and the hard to believe. And, and don't write this stuff off as, 
as if this is ancient people who are just more susceptible to this stuff. They, they didn't believe it either. But they had a harder time than we do utterly rejecting it because they saw it. Then at about the midpoint in his ministry, Jesus decided that he wanted to up the game on his training. So he sent the disciples out on their own campaigns to, to travel to villages throughout the area and throughout Galilee. And, and so they went. And they, as they went, they, they taught what they'd heard Jesus teach. They did what they had seen Jesus do, including the miracles and the confrontations with evil spirits. After this time, they, they all come back. They collect again with Jesus. And it seems like their, their teaching events had been very successful. And so Jesus thought that it was time for them to have some R&R. So he grabbed them and decided that they would get away up into the hills to a, a place near the city of, or the little town of Bethsaida. Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida, by the way, Bethsaida, Beth means house or home of. Bethsaida, that word literally means home of hunting. I think it's curious where that might have come from. Uh, anyway, three of the disciples were from Bethsaida. Peter, uh, Andrew, and, and Philip. It was a small town northeast of the Sea of Galilee, as I said, in the hills, and it was in a very remote area. Here's the thing. Jesus already becoming a really well-known commodity in the area, and the disciples, having just returned from their own successful campaigns throughout Galilee, was not surprising that a large crowd of people followed them and, and began gathering around, camping out uh, in the, the area around Bethsaida near where the disciples were. And Jesus, of course, began teaching the crowd, and just a little toss-off, Luke adds in, and healing some of the sick people that were there. And the disciples grew understandably concerned at one point about how they were going to handle the logistics of this gathering. So they said, Jesus, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside, look for food and lodging, because we're out in the middle of nowhere, and Bethsaida can't accommodate all of these people. In John's account of this story, he tells us that Jesus asked Philip, hey, uh, where can we buy bread for these people? I think he may have asked that because he knew Philip was from the Bethsaida area. But John also tells us that already at that point, Jesus knew what he was going to do here. And Philip said, Jesus, eight months wages won't buy enough bread for all of these people to have even a bite. And then John explained that a little boy was found. Luke doesn't give us this detail. A little boy was found who had a basket with five barley loaves and two fish in it. You give them something to eat, Jesus said. Now, I've always wondered why Jesus asked them that or told them to do that. I, was, he, was he testing them? Was he teasing them? Anyway, they reported to Jesus about the five loaves and the two fish and Jesus, and remember this, Jesus took them, the fish and the bread. He looked up to heaven he gave thanks, and he broke them. But some of you recognize that rhythm. We'll talk about that in a second. I mean, at this point, it kind of looks like a magic trick, right? What, what's he going to do with five loaves and two fish? There are 5,000 people, actually more than that. Luke says 5,000 men. And somehow, everyone ate, and 12 baskets full of leftovers were picked up afterwards. Was there food among the crowd that the disciples hadn't ferreted out? Some have suggested this was really a miracle of, of 
sharing. Uh, Jesus inspired everyone to pitch in and share, and they found that they had more than enough food for everyone. Maybe. But it sure doesn't seem like that explains anywhere near all that happened here. How could the disciples have not seen all of this abundance of food? Plus, let's acknowledge how amazed they were at this event. This story is recounted, by the way, in all four of the biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Very few stories are recounted in all four of the the biographies. This was a big one in their minds. Parentheses. Let's step aside from the story for just a second. Did you notice the verbs a second ago that I told you to remember? He took the bread, he looked up to heaven, he gave thanks, and he broke it. These are the same verbs that are used to describe the Lord's Supper, the the last meal that Jesus ate with his disciples, the Passover meal. And many Bible students believe that these these two events, the feeding of the 5,000 and that last supper, that these two events were tied together in the minds of the first followers. Can you see that? Can you see that they might have tied together the feeding of the 5,000 with the last supper? In fact, if you look at verse 17 in this story, in the NIV version it says this, uh, they picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces. And that term, broken pieces, is the exact same term that's used in a second century document that is explaining to Christians how to observe the Last Supper when they get together. It told them to, essentially the same thing we still say here on Sunday mornings at Gateway when we do this about once a month. It said, take the broken pieces, pass them to one another and say, the body of Christ broken for you. Same term. They put these two events together in their mind. If you get a chance sometime this week, think about why that might have been the case. Anyway, back to our story. Clearly, one of the main themes in Jesus' life at this point was people in general and the disciples in particular trying to figure out who he was. What kind of man is this? So with that in mind, I want you to notice something about Luke's account. Now remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were right, they weren't writing objective, sterile biographies. These guys were believers, and they wanted their readers to be believers as well. They were trying to convince their readers who this man was. They had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was God the Son, and Luke wanted us to believe that as well. So at times, they arranged the materials in their biographies for maximum impact, and I think this is one of those times. If you look at the beginning of chapter 9 of Luke, and I want you to do so either now or later this week. If you look at the beginning of Luke, uh, of chapter 9, you'll notice the story of Jesus sending out the disciples that I told just a second ago. And then right after that story, he includes this little note. And listen to this. It says this, and bring it up on the screen if you would, Pete. Now Herod, he was Petrarch in the area. Herod heard about all that was going on, And he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But but Herod said, wait, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. I think that's incredibly fascinating that that Herod wanted to see Jesus. But notice that Luke uses this little interlude to introduce the story of the miraculous feeding. I think he puts the story here for, 
he puts this here for us, for the reader. Through our story today, I think Luke is answering Herod's question. Who is this guy? And Luke is saying, he's the kind of guy that can do this. How did Jesus do this exactly? What happened? Well, we don't have any idea. None of the four biographies include any, anything that would help us understand how he did this. They just don't explain. Jordan and I were talking about this story this week. And, you know, Jordan made an observation I never thought of before. He said, Dad, you know, Dad, uh, this fish are a living thing. When he was passing this out, was he creating living things? It's the kind of, it's interesting to me that the biographies don't venture any explanation. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they do explain some detail. And for those of you who are doubters, it's hard for you to believe even when they do give us detail. But this one, they don't even try. They don't even offer any explanation for this. I think it's because this was just so mind-boggling. They had no explanation. God can do whatever he wants to do. And he often does in meeting our needs. Now, one of my favorite things about this story is imagining how they would have remembered it and used it in their lives. Think about the early gatherings of Christians and the first few decades right after Jesus was uh, killed and he was resurrected, and, and they were gathering regularly at this point. They would gather and they would sing songs and they would have prophetic words and they would say things and, and then uh, they would remember stories about Jesus. And I imagine this is one of the stories that they would regularly remember and they would share. So I want you to imagine in those early gatherings their prayer request time. This is one of their early gatherings and we have a prayer request time. Anybody have any prayer requests? Well, yes. Uh, we had a horrible year this year because of the drought and Abe doesn't think that we can feed the children through the winter. Please pray for us. We will pray, Salome, but remember, he fed 5,000 people. I think he can handle it. We don't have anything to use for the taxes this coming year. We're not sure what to do. Please pray for us. We will pray, Jacob, but remember, he fed 5,000 people. I think he can handle it. We're not sure how to pay off the debt we inherited on our land from our father-in-law. Please pray. We will pray, Ruth. But remember, he fed 5,000 people. He's got it. We're not sure if the children learned anything this past year with the weird distance learning atmosphere. Please pray for us. We will pray. But remember, 5,000. I think he's got it. Please pray for me. I don't have any friends right now. We'll pray. But remember, 5,000. He's got it. Our finances are so incredibly stretched right now. My health is deeply concerning. I can't find a job. We will pray. But for your part, for our part, stop worrying. Be still and rest. Our God supplies our needs. He is able to provide exceedingly, abundantly beyond what we can even imagine. He is able to provide outside of the particulars of our circumstances. Our God provides exactly what we need when we call on him. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let me pray for us.
Father, uh, I confess this is so hard for me to com completely lean into this and trust this. I am constantly clinging to some concern or some worry or some lack. And this morning, Lord, I personally recognize that you provide exactly what I need, exactly what is best for me. You are able, in spite of my difficulty, in spite of the trial, in spite of my circumstances, you are able ultimately to see me through to exactly what I need and who I'm supposed to be. Lord, I pray over each of us this morning that you would swallow up our worries and our concerns with your great provision. You are able. So this morning, we take um, our resources and we look to heaven and we give thanks and we break them before you and we ask that you would multiply them. In the strong name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.